Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. Well, welcome to Greystone Conversations and the first episode in this special series focused on explaining and commending an exciting new initiative in Greystone Theological Institute, uh, which in one way is uh, rather unique and in other ways is deeply traditional. And uh, as you have perhaps come to expect, or at least I, I hope you have come to expect, um, the combination of something that is new with something that is, in fact, very old, making old things new, is very much uh, a key concern uh, for the Greystone Way. I-, I can hardly think of a better example of this effort and this interest than the initiative uh, we are able to discuss uh, starting in this episode and for several episodes to come, and that is the Mechanical Arts Program or the MAP initiative within Greystone. Um, Right from the start, we're going to want to clarify what we do and do not mean by mechanical arts, but that will become clear enough as we uh, discuss and and explain uh, this fascinating, very old, and yet very timely way of looking at faithfulness, wisdom, and the call that we all have to thoughtful engagement with one another and with the world of God's creation and providence. I'm joined today by Mr. Michael Sacassis and Mr. Joshua Klein, whom I will introduce shortly. But let me introduce the mechanical arts program within Greystone with a bit of history and a bit of orientation. In his Didascalicon, the famous medieval theologian Hugh St. Victor revolutionized the monastic curriculum by adding a category of study, the artis mechanicae, mechanical arts, to the traditional areas of theoretical, practical, and logical forms of philosophy, the established elements of the medieval monastic curriculum. For Hugh, the mechanical arts, as he called them, included all kinds of industry and craft, organized into seven categories, grouped into three and four, which corresponded to the trivium and quadrivium of the seven liberal arts. In this way, Hugh recovered the theological and formative significance of highly skilled, ordinary laborers whose work bears a particularly valuable relation to creation and providence, and on those grounds may provide a source of wisdom to those called to the church's ministry today and for thoughtful Christians generally. Well, in the world of scripture, and especially in the book of Proverbs, we are directed to the ordinary skilled laborer and the mundane beauties of creation and providence as sources of wisdom. In our own hurried and harried cultural moment, however, this vision exists in unresolvable tension with the inattentive pace of life and the professionalization of knowledge 
Today, celebrity figures and their platforms tend to overshadow or even displace the ordinary sources of wisdom with which God and his loving providence has surrounded his people. Think particularly of churches, families, friendships, and communities, not as mere social and cultural or historical phenomena, but within the world of God's ordered providence as intended spheres and contexts of wisdom and therefore of formation. Well, under the guidance of Mr. Michael Sacassus, who is director of the Christian Study Center in Gainesville, Florida, and Greystone Associate Fellow in Ethics and Culture, and of Mr. Joshua Klein, editor-in-chief and publisher of Mortis and Tenon Magazine, a woodworker and Greystone Associate Fellow in Mechanical Arts, we have the MAP Initiative, which will provide regularly within the Greystone orbit opportunities for thoughtful Christians within and outside degree programs and certificate programs to engage many key and important texts in this whole area, as well as to enjoy opportunities to carry out under the leadership and guidance of skilled craftsmen to learn the disciplines of craft, to learn how things work, to learn more of God's world and our well-ordered relationship to it. Not only that we might learn something of craft itself, but ultimately that we might faithfully inhabit the spaces God has placed us in, relate well to the people he has surrounded us with, serve them well with a thoughtfulness that reflects our due diligence as craftsmen and craftswomen in God's world, and who appreciates as a result of these readings and these practical opportunities, the opportunities before us not only to learn new things, but to learn how to be and to relate more wisely and fruitfully. Greystone's Mechanical Arts Program exists, in short, to facilitate the cultivation of attentiveness to God's word, to his world, and to his ways through a series of carefully structured learning experiences. Inspired by the book of Proverbs, this program is designed to be both minds-on and hands-on. And so for a MAP event, the student will first have read in the theology and philosophy of craft in general, and then will learn hand skills under a master craftsperson in a mentorship setting alongside fellow students. And then after these things, reflect on this experience and on these readings with fellow students and with a Greystone mentor in order to identify some ways that excellence in workmanship can translate into excellence in thoughtful, faithful pastoral ministry and Christian faith and life. The Greystone Network of Craftspeople, which are spread throughout the United States and the world, includes masters in woodworking, plumbing, farming, gardening, viticulture or wine, medicine, permaculture, automotive mechanics, textiles, the culinary arts, teaching, finance, law, and more. Alongside Hugh of St. Victor, other philosophical or theological influences for the MAP initiative include Professor of Furniture Design David Pye, writer and motorcycle mechanic Matthew Crawford, philosopher Roger Scruton, anthropologist Tim Ingold, writer and farmer Wendell Berry, theologian and social critic Yvonne Illich, 
priest and chef Robert Capon, philosopher of technology Albert Borgman, and others. Now, what's different about Greystone's approach to the mechanical arts is not only the fact that we are giving attention to this in the first place, but that this is now a requirement in all of Greystone's degree program partnerships and our own certificates. In order to complete a Greystone program, we want our students to have gone through the reading list and also an experience under the oversight of our MAP leaders and guides in order that this theology and philosophy deeply rooted in scripture and the Christian tradition regarding our relationship to the world, to the world's maker and to one another finds deep resonance in those who come through our programs and that they will have had an opportunity to do what so few other theological students tend to have the opportunity to do. And that is to reflect on the relationship between providence and pastoral care and Christian love and faithfulness. To get us from here to there, Greystone is wonderfully blessed with two extraordinarily well-suited scholars and thoughtful Christians who are able to provide oversight of this program alongside me here at Greystone. And these are Michael Sacassis, whom you know, and Joshua Klein, whom we are very excited to introduce to you in a more sustained way today. First of all, Michael, thank you for joining us today and welcome to episode one of five in this series of Reflections on the Mechanical Arts Program within Greystone. I'm very glad indeed to welcome you not just to another podcast episode, but to this one in particular, given the excitement we have long had to keep under wraps until this was ready for the MAP initiative. Mike, would you mind introducing yourself a bit more fully to our audience today? Remind our listeners of who you are and what you do and connect that, if you could, to what we're up to in the MAP initiative. Sure. Thanks, Mark. And uh, yeah, very pleased to be here with you all and, and glad to be working on this together. I'm presently the director of the Christian Study Center in Gainesville, Florida. The Study Center is is one of a network of uh, loosely affiliated centers, all positioned near university or college campuses. And uh, so we think of ourselves as para-university or para-academic institutions representing the resources of the Christian tradition in the context of, of the university community. We host all manner of uh, reading groups and lectures and talks and, and classes and generally try to provide a space for, for thoughtful conversation, engagement with, again, the resources of our tradition, but also the best of contemporary scholarship. I also write a, a newsletter about technology and culture, broadly speaking, um, called the Convivial Society, which is a nod to the work of Ivan Illich. That uh, newsletter and my writing in that capacity is generally centered on trying to figure out how to live wisely and faithfully uh, in our present technological milieu. So I draw on a lot of older sources, older writers, some of whom will feed very naturally into this program whose wisdom I think is still vital in helping us navigate the challenges that are posed to the moral life and even the spiritual life by, again, our technological milieu. So that's uh, those are the, the two areas that get most of my attention. And I, I think the questions that come up in those contexts, especially in the context of thinking about technology and society, to me, many of those questions uh, revolve around the nature of the good life, the role that engagement 
has to play in cultivating virtue, the kind of habits that we form through the use of different technologies and and the way that translates into a a form of tacit moral formation, Uh, and the the role of the body, the place of embodiment in uh, mediating our interactions with the world and and how our tools enter into that loop of uh, mind, body, and world. So all of that lends itself, I think, very nicely to to the kinds of questions and issues that we'll be raising in this program. Thank you, Michael. That's very helpful. Before we bring Joshua into the picture for our conversation, could you tell our audience how they can get a hold of your work in the newsletter? Is there a place they can sign up for it? Yeah, the newsletter is hosted by Substack, uh, theconvivialsociety.substack.com. So I think if you just search for the Convivial Society and my name, it'll come up pretty readily, and uh, you're welcome to obviously sign up there. All of the writing is public. You'll note that there there is a, a paid option for those who want to support the work, but that is absolutely not necessary. The free sign-up will get you all of the, the writing on the newsletter. Thank you, Michael. And Joshua Klein, what a treat to have you on our episode today, helping us introduce and explain the Mechanical Arts Initiative, the MAP program. Here at Greystone, I have found myself increasingly commending your work in Mortis and Tenon magazine to people all around, students in the classroom, fellow faculty colleagues at Greystone and at Westminster Theological Seminary, other friends I make, and often for different reasons. Sometimes I just want to point it out as a terrific example of combining beautiful content with beautiful presentation, which matters. And uh, in other cases, because I see a a Christian brother or sister who has a great interest in woodworking, and I'd love for them to situate that affection and interest in the big picture it belongs to and see them approach the wood, as it were, with the benefit of your uh, wisdom and uh, and guidance along these lines. So having uh, mentioned your name so many times to so many, and having told a few people of what we're up to, it's a special treat to be able to, to hear from you about this work and how it connects with what you, what you do in your, in your vocation. So Joshua, welcome to you. Would you mind telling our audience a bit more about yourself and your work? Thank you, Mark. I am very excited to be here. Uh, as we were talking the first time we had our first meeting, we were talking about our vision and our passions. And it, I felt like the whole meeting was I know, I know. Oh, wow. Because we both had the same same passion, the same drive to be able to connect people with the world that God has made in, in a full way. So yeah, I am the editor, I'm the founder of Mortis and Tendon Magazine, which is a publication ostensibly about woodworking. Uh, but the goal is we don't feature, you know, strictly tutorial step projects, how to execute this particular task. There's a lot of that kind of publication out there. So what our interest is, is to to connect the dots, the work of the mind, the work of the hands, and the work of the heart, to look at the philosophy of craft, to take a sort of narrative approach to describing woodworking processes or craft philosophy. We also have historians writing about the history of, of the craft. So uh, our approach is you're not going to see the step one, step two, step three. It's more sort of a deep dive into the philosophical, why do we make things, you know, and how does it fit into 21st century life? So we do find that I end up interacting a lot with the work of the past because, you know, we have a place like, say, Colonial Williamsburg that is focused on 18th century work and they have the puffy sleeves and all that kind of stuff. 
and they're right alongside me in this journey into understanding the work of the past. But for us, our vision is for the future. We want to learn these tools, this pre-industrial tooling to be able to uh, inform our work for now. And the, the reason we're doing that is because I have been reading on the philosophy of technology for a handful of years and uh, very helped by a number of the people already cited here, Albert Borgman and, and others. And I remember listening through Michael's class, Greystone class on technology. And I remember going through, listening through, and I, it just kept getting better and better and better. And I almost got to the point that you know I could almost anticipate where he was heading with it. I said, yes, that's exactly the illustration to use. <laughs> and so I've been telling people that is the best presentation of technology that I have ever heard or read. And so we're on the same wavelength, you know, seeing the, the beauty of engagement in God's world, seeing the beauty of, of uh, the importance of embodiment, um, not just head work, but also hand work. And it's because we're not just brains on sticks, right? But that we are creatures who are embodied creatures. We are embodied souls. And so I think that's a, it's a valuable thing, especially living in the time of the metaverse and a lot of people thinking maybe it'd be better to be a brain on a stick. And so a lot of my work has been saying, nope, I don't think so. I don't think that would be better. And here are a lot of reasons for it. So my interest in hand tools is not just, you know, some historic reenactment kind of thing, but my interest in hand tools is because they're particularly valuable for cultivating attentiveness and engagement. As Mike was talking about, they're calling you to a deep involvement with the things of this world. You have to know how the grain of wood works when you have a hand tool, you can't bypass that. You have to learn the world. And so that's, that's the idea behind Mortis and Tenon and my drive. And so a lot of the philosophical background to it, whether I'm teaching a Sunday school about a theology of work, or I'm talking to Mortis and Tenon readers about different ways to think about the work of their hands. Um, all of it is trying to bring in, you know, for lack of a better term, a holism, you know, a, a big unifying head, heart and hand unity to what we're doing. And so that's, you know, I remember when we started talking about MAP, we started talking about this program, I said, this is what I've been praying about for, for years. You know, how can I partner with people to cultivate this awareness? So I'm very excited about this program. It's to Great Stone's uh, considerable benefit that um, the Lord has done what he has done in your life already, Joshua, and has brought you within the, the Greystone family and network in order to, to help us serve the present, but also the future generations of the church's leaders and other thoughtful Christians in this way. The more I reflect on this subject matter, the more impressed I am, not only with its importance, but perhaps with its urgency. Uh, there's a timeliness to taking a step back and reflecting on some of these in fact, deep running concerns um, and relating them to the commitments of the Christian faith. You mentioned Mike's series on technology and faith and human flourishing. That is available at graystoneconnect.org. That's where Joshua encountered it. And it is a superb micro course length uh, series of talks on that subject. I'm going to persuade Michael to return to Graystone to continue with a new set of lectures on this overall subject matter. It's one of the reasons people do sign up for the Greystone membership is because of Mike's series that's there and because you can find this at Greystone and not many other places in God's providence, at least just now, and because they have found his work generally so helpful here. So I do commend that series from Michael to our audience. If you haven't 
had a chance to listen through that yet, that would be a very good idea. Joshua, could you tell us how our audience could get a hold of Mortis and Tenon magazine? Uh, yeah, uh, the the website would be the best place, which is mortisandtenonmag.com. Or you could search, you know, in the search engines for Mortis and Tenon magazine and you'd find it. Uh, we have activities spread around the internet, so you'd be able to find that. But mortisandtenonmag.com is the hub for all of our activity. And can you tell us a bit about your colleague as well who works with you to to lead this venture? Yeah, so I am blessed to be able to work with my best friend in the world. Uh, we mm-hmm. were good friends, and through the work of Mortis and Tenon, we've grown even closer. And he is right on the same page with us. We talk, Mike and I talk about this stuff every day, actually. And so uh, he's a brother in the Lord, and our, our passion is to be able to do this this same picture together. So Mike Updegraff and I are sort of a we're a duo, you know, in this project, and thinking through uh, ways to to kind of challenge people, spur people on to, to think more deeply about why they're doing what they're doing and, and ways to make it more rich and beautiful. Yes, indeed. And you can find some podcast conversations out there also doing the uh, search engine thing where uh, Mortis and Tendon is explained and unpacked in different ways and the work of certain influential thinkers, David Pye, whom we will talk about, is unpacked as well. So there's a lot out there for our enjoyment and edification. Very good. I'd I'd like to kind of lead us off, as it were, by taking us backward, which will not be surprising to our audience, given the kinds of things we're already talking about. I have in view going quite far back in the Christian tradition to the gentleman I mentioned at the outset of our our episode today, Hugh St. Victor. And I'd like to set up our conversation today in this first episode in this series by explaining where we got this language of mechanical arts, which is from Hugh of St. Victor. He didn't invent the idea. There is at least one clear example of the use of this language in this category before Hugh, but he is the first one really to establish it in a curriculum and to argue for its inclusion the way that he did. Hugh of St. Victor is a early 12th century medieval theologian He's considered the first medieval encyclopedist who, to make the artes mechanicae, the mechanical arts, a key component of philosophy as it had long been uh, treated and understood. And these mechanical arts or artes mechanicae, which are first named as a part of philosophy by Hugh in the 1120s, his famous work, the Didascalicon, is located within a traditional overarching curriculum of the liberal arts, but is joined up to them, not merely by addition, but in the way he explains the mechanical arts, he is providing a warrant for seeing a special theological as well as philosophical relationship between the seven arts, as he will list them, and the seven liberal arts. Just uh, so we're all aware, the seven mechanical arts that he has in view are fabric making, armament, commerce, agriculture, hunting, medicine, and theatrics. These are, in fact, seven categories for Hugh that cover a vast amount of subject matter, especially as we're thinking of the subjects in our context, in our day. For example, it's under the category of hunting that Hugh locates 
the culinary arts, everything that has to do with food and wine. In fact, there's quite a bit about this whole dimension of life. All of this is located under this category called hunting. And there's a similar diversity and breadth and scope of interest in these other ones, theatrics, agriculture, commerce, and so on. He did position these as a kind of parallel to the seven liberal arts. And historians in the modern world, I think particularly of the last century or so, or much of the last century, historians who have this great relatively new interest in science and engineering, largely fueled by the assumption that the scientism of the modern world is a uh, by default a good thing, a, a thing that holds promise for our ongoing improvement and development uh, and growth as a people. This new interest in science and engineering propelled by some ideas that we would not see as healthy has become the occasion for interest in asking the questions of science and technology of the Christian past as well as the past generally. So there's an interest in what Hugh St. Victor was doing that wasn't really an interest even in the very early 20th century, but has since become a matter of great interest. And while there are a lot of helpful works on Hugh, uh, Paul Warham's book on Hugh of St. Victor and the Great Medieval Thinkers series, published by Oxford, a very, very helpful guide to Hugh of St. Victor, and many other works like this that are helpful in explaining his treatment of the mechanical arts. I want to say I have not found a work as helpful on this question as a 2018 PhD thesis at Cambridge by one Anya Bergen, who I hope we'll be able to have in a future episode of Greystone Conversations. Her 2018 thesis is called The Mechanical Arts and Poiesis in the Philosophy and Literature of the 12th Century Schools. And while her her study covers others in addition to Hugh, much of it is focused on Hugh. And she is the one, I think, who really helps us appreciate why Hugh's introduction of the mechanical arts would matter not just to historians of science and technology and engineering, but would also help us understand why we, in Greystone Conversations, in the context of Greystone Theological Institute, confessional, reformed, Catholicity-minded churchmen and people interested in the training of ministers and the formation of thoughtful Christians as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers in the context of Reformed churches, why we would have an interest in Hugh of St. Victor, why we would have an interest in the mechanical arts. The way she explains what Hugh is after, I think, helps us understand why this would matter to confessional Reformed Christians. She helps us understand the significance of the mechanical arts in Hugh uh, in the context of schoolmen working in northern France in the 12th century. And while it's a category designating a set of everyday technologies, it had, she calls it, a more covert imaginative currency for certain authors as an image or exemplum for the process of learning. The procedures and activities specific to the mechanical arts are procedures and activities that can be held up as a mirror 
to the procedures and activities of the liberal and especially verbal arts. Picturing those verbal arts in terms of poiesis, the ancient model for philosophy as an act of sense-making, as an act of world-making, so that the mechanical arts have a metaphorical utility. And this can be discerned in the way Hugh St. Victor discusses them. This assumption of a metaphorical, a theological, and a world-explaining, sense-making usefulness, again, of the processes and activities at work in the mechanical arts. This is something that runs deeply underneath his more overt literal concerns with these mechanical arts as so-called everyday technologies. This is given fullest expression, Bergen suggests, in some Chartrian poets, and she mentions Bernard and Allen of the 1140s to 1180s. In Bergen's work, we, we learn something of how Hugh organized the seven individual mechanical arts that we listed moments ago, uh, organized them specifically to parallel, but then therefore also to illuminate those traditional seven liberal arts, the three of the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and dialectic, the four mathematical arts, the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. While the liberal arts were seen in this context, in this period, as liberating man from the material and sensible concerns of everyday life, at least classically they were seen that way, the mechanical arts are wholly concerned with the material realm, which they adapt to human utility and comfort for many of the medieval writers. The way Hugh introduces the mechanical arts is precisely by positioning them, Bergen explains, as the lowest of three works or opera making up the cosmos. Now, in Greystone, we reject the kind of vertical hierarchical scheme at work here, and we replace it with a more liturgical account of the ordering of the diverse but unified facets of reality. But that doesn't displace the value of how he's still thinking through the relatedness of these things. So this is Hugh himself. He says, the work of God, the work of nature, and the work of the artificer who imitates nature. These are the three, the work of God, the work of nature, and then the work of the artificer who imitates nature. That's, of course, a long-standing traditional way of understanding work and craft, more specifically. Its integrity, its value, its effectiveness is coincident with the degree to which the artificer is imitating nature in one degree or another. Having just taught on theological aesthetics for Westminster, we dealt a lot with this relationship in the history of philosophy and theology. Hugh goes on to say, the work of God is to create that which was not. The work of nature is to bring forth into actuality that which lay hidden. The work of the artificer is to put together things disjoined or to disjoin those put together. When that work of disjoining or joining, disjoining that which is bound up, joining those things which are disparate or spread out in ways that are fruitful, in ways that have integrity, in ways that are valuable in a deep as well as immediate sense, 
that is reflective of living with the grain of reality. That disjoining or joining effort or activity, we know theologically, reflects very much the nature of the creation account in Genesis of the God who brings things into being, but as the master farmer is occupied, as it were, with joining and disjoining uh, with a view to fecundity and fruitfulness and life-bearing value. This is mechanical for Hugh in as much as it is the activity designed to imitate nature fitly. Unlike nature, Hugh explains, which, as it were, comes into being fully clothed and resourced for itself, man comes into creation naked. Man comes into creation hungry. Man comes into creation vulnerable, needing certain things, which he is to secure by the deployment of skill, which is far more than trained to do X. It is a matter of the rightly ordered relationship to God and to his handiwork creation and a living with the grain of that reality and a working with the grain of that reality, not simply to duplicate it, but to truly cultivate it to something that is beyond itself, which reaches beyond and above what it is as such. Uh, And in this way, we connect the mechanical as the fitly ordered and fruitful relationship to what is and how things are, the ordered reality that creation and providence tell us, surrounds us, fitly ordered to what is and fitly ordered also to how things shall be and should be. There's the ethical dimension of this as well. This is where Greystone is getting the language of the mechanical arts. So it's not about being a mechanic, although really good, thoughtful mechanics can put on display certain of the commitments and concerns of the so-called mechanical arts. Alongside this is, of course, what the Greystone audience would expect along the lines of theological reading of scripture itself. And though all of the Christian canon of scripture is relevant here, the material that seems immediately pertinent is the book of Proverbs, inasmuch as Proverbs is replete with the assumption as well as the explicit commendations of the pursuit of wisdom being a pursuit undertaken in the mundane, in the ordinary context and environments of human life. We are going to spend some time on this later on, how the sources of wisdom idea is explained and unpacked in the world of Proverbs. But this is immensely important for students in Greystone programs because pastors especially, but all thoughtful Christians are concerned with this, but pastors especially need to exemplify the proper pursuit of wisdom and recognition of potential or real sources of wisdom in the mundane, precisely because the drift and pressure, not only of the world around us in general terms, but even of Christian culture, can sometimes be precisely in the other direction of where Proverbs teaches us to expect to encounter sources and resources of wisdom. One of the net benefits, I think, of what we're doing in the MAP initiative will be the cultivation of attentiveness and attunement on the part of our students and one another to the potential or real sources of wisdom all around them, even in their 
perhaps unspectacular, humble, faithful church congregations. How is it that a pastor who is seminary trained with a master's degree, who has gone through many years of schooling, how is it that he can possibly look at the faithful Christian grandmother in the third pew on the left as a real source of providential wisdom for himself and not only for the congregation as a whole? Well, he will be in a position to do so if he has rejected the professionalization of wisdom, which has become common currency even in Christian circles. You need the credential in order to be considered wise, and one goes with the other. But he will also be in a position to do so if he has been sensitized to how God ordinarily funds our need for wisdom. And that is through the ordinary, through the experiences of others and our own experiences, from the humility which wants not only for us to learn from our own mistakes, but can share those mistakes so others learn from them too, from getting things wrong and not only getting things right, uh, how things are done well as itself instructive, not just for the skill in the narrow sense, but the life skill in the thick and general sense that wisdom is. Those who are attuned to how God funds wisdom for his people by listening to the book of Proverbs and the testimony of scripture generally, I think will be in the best position to deploy the real insights of Hugh St. Victor, but also the tradition of Neo-Calvinism, which in its own way was particularly eager to recover the positive theological and wisdom significance of ordinary lives and vocations, and other traditions and expressions of the church throughout history, which have in one way or another put that same concern on display. So that's a bit of explanation of where we're getting our language of the mechanical arts and Hugh of St. Victor's role in that. But it also sets us up to understand or to appreciate something about the word craftsmanship. And for that, Joshua, you are my favorite resource, and you have read some very helpful people on this very topic. Would you mind giving us a sense of what we mean or should mean by craftsmanship, particularly within the context of the MAP initiative? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. One of the things, you know, we talked about in the, in the formation of this program was thinking about what do we even call this thing? How, how do we frame this? How do we help people think about uh, what we want to get across? And uh, we did talk about the liability of using mechanical arts as a descriptor because it might throw someone off into, we think of something yes. being me- mechanical and sending us off to some, you know, device somewhere operating a, a motor or something like that. Hmm. Our focus, however, is the much more ancient way of thinking about mechanical arts as craftsmanship, as the work of being, as you were describing it, attuned to or attentive to reality in the way it is. And so I think it's helpful to be thinking about what craftsmanship is. And there is sort of the maker movement around today and you go into a coffee shop and you see the you know the rough hewn coffee table and people want this true craftsmanship or this kind of thing and it's it's kind of in the air and you know, people are excited about that i always felt so intrigued by that you know why are the six dollar mochas served on tables that look like they you know washed up on the shore of a beach right mm, why would yes. that be attractive what is it about that uh, that that kind of resonates with people that they say there's something deep and beautiful and meaningful here because it looks like rubbish right and so i think that was a question that's kind of i've been rolling around for a while thinking what is it about 
uh, in that case, machine marks or tool marks, evidence of the work that still remain on the, the surface. Why do people want to see that? Why don't they want that all, you know, veneered over or taken away? And I think what I have been thinking about through this and reading and, and thinking about the nature of what uh, craftsmanship is, I was greatly helped by a man named David Pye and his writing, The Nature and Art of Workmanship. And one of the things I think that he wanted to say is he wanted to not get stuck on the hand versus machine discussion, but really kind of get to the heart of it that goes beyond that. And I think the fundamental point, the fundamental question he was asking in that book is, why do we value those kinds of things? Why do we value hand craftsmanship? What is it that connects? What he's pointing at, what he's getting at is uh, what he ends up calling this the workmanship of risk, which is just, you can see that the outcome of the work the outcome of the task when someone is hewing with an axe or planing a board to thickness or, you know, weaving uh, a basket when the outcome is dependent on the, the judgment or dexterity of, or care within the maker's hands, that is the heart of craftsmanship. If you were to take a different path and say, well, maybe I don't have the skill or I want to do this in mass production. Then what you would do is you would set up a jig to, fix or secure the outcome so that you can displace skill. You don't need as much skill to get a successful outcome so that it looks nice. Um, and that, that jigging of the process for bringing some sort of device in to displace skill is a workmanship of certainty, he called it. And so he's saying the heart, the heart of craftsmanship is work that is dependent upon the skill, the, the dexterity that is in the maker's hand. And so I think also you can think about skill and craftsmanship more than just, say, in my example, woodworking or in weaving or something like that. But when you think about craftsmanship in all other spheres, you can think about the same sort of thing. Let's say someone who's skilled at a party, someone who has, you know, they're, they're kind of the life of the party and they're always the person who they're going to, I'm going to introduce you to this guy and they're always networking and they're, Everybody seems to get along with them. They always have a story to share. They can connect with people. And you say, that guy is, he's good. He's so skilled. He, he just fits in so well. And it's because he's attuned to the room. He knows what's going on. And he's not depending on some sort of jigged mentality. Oh, how do I need my conversation starter right now? I need my prepackaged answer. He's attuned to who people are and he's responding to the immediate circumstance. That's the heart of craftsmanship. That's the heart mm. of skill. So I think the connection to ministerial work or any sort of a discipleship is right on line with that. Do we have a jigged mentality? Do we have prepackaged answers? Or are we paying attention to the people in front of us and praying for wisdom? Lord, help me to discern which, which of all these proverbs, <laughs> which of your insights in scripture, which of what you're teaching me applies to this circumstance. So I think that the heart of craftsmanship is not, I, I don't think it's tangential. This isn't about, you know, we're trying to argue a theological case for why you should make all your own furniture. That's right, not what right. we're talking about here. But what we're talking about is cultivating a craftsman-like mentality so that we can look at the world, not with a prepackaged set of answers that we can put on, but that we can be engaged with God's world. And that's immensely helpful. I want to take a step even further in the direction of if you will, metabolizing what you've given us to chew on. 
you are a father and you are a husband, Joshua. You're also an elder in a congregation. Has there ever been a time where you have opted for one course of action or thinking over against another in your capacity as a ruling elder or perhaps as a husband or father, and you have opted for one course of action rather than the other because of some of these kinds of considerations that you have taken from your relationship to craft. You don't have to be specific and don't name names, but has that ever happened? Does it play that kind of role in forming you as a decision maker and as an interpreter of pastoral needs or other situations going on beyond what it means for doing your craft well? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think maybe the comparison that I would draw between them, it's, you know, it's not been conscious. I never yes. have been in a pastoral, you know, counseling situation and felt like, oh, this is like woodworking. Right? <laughs> but I will say that. So in my woodworking instruction, when I'm teaching a, a student woodworking, one of the things I like to make sure to teach them is that it's a myth that a board has a grain direction. That's not true at all. Actually, most boards have a whole bunch of grain directions because trees are not grown in factories, but they're actually, they come from living things that twist and turn and they split off and they do all sorts of things. So when you cut a straight board, you have grain that does this. It, it winds all around and it twists and it moves all throughout the board. So when you, when you mill it straight and you take a, a tool to it and you're about to work it, you realize, oh, I see the grain direction here. I'm going to start going working this way. And then you need to be attentive because, oh, wow, it just shifted. And you have to change your tactic in that very moment. And then you need to be paying attention the whole rest of the board because it's going to change again. And I think that sort of realization has been very helpful for me as a husband, as a father, as an elder. I know that you can relate to this, that you 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 take each moment as it is and you pray for wisdom. Lord, help me to discern what to do here. It's common that we say, we, and we think about raising kids and it's it's not like we can treat every kid different. Every Every kid is unique. You can't apply, read one book and this book really explains this kid and this book really explains this kid. I actually think it changes every day <laughs> in my experience. It's not that my oldest boy always has been the same. And we just keep applying the same uh, mentality to parenting him. It's that we're always needing to be paying attention to what he needs now in this stage of development. So I think that's the kind of thing, that's the connection to the handcraft is that there is no one size fits all. You always have to be paying attention. You always have to be ready. So you have to cultivate a broader awareness. There's no manual out there what to expect when you're expecting that's really going to match up with real life in this way, I suppose. Um, yeah. you've, you've helped us think about craftsmanship as attuned dexterity, yeah. um, which commends craftsmanship really as a mode of life of responsiveness to hmm. changing reality, the flexibility, the dexterity that's able to do justice to twists and turns like the grain and the wood you were just describing, that kind of attentiveness, which I think has to require that we are okay with the idea of changing our minds, of learning something. And as a result of learning something, maybe changing how we pastor as a result of learning something. At least that comes to mind as a possibility. I, I've said before, 
one of the scariest things I have seen in my years as a pastor and, and serving the church is a well-experienced, seasoned, older pastor who's been at this for a long time, who takes great pride in claiming that he has never changed his mind on something or never really changed his views on something theological. And I'm wondering, what have you been doing all these <laughs> decades? Have you not learned a thing? Learning changes you. Uh, I think it's among the scariest things out there in, in the life of the church because it's scary generally. That's not a, it's not a humane mode of life. It's not in keeping with how God has made us. I think the craftsmanship idea helps us here, at least to, to some extent. And Mike, undoubtedly, you're hearing in what Joshua is saying, all kinds of things that fire off uh, resonances with the world of literature you engage all the time. Is that right? Oh, yeah, definitely. In fact, I, I'm going to read a little paragraph here that I've been working with recently, and it's uh, from a thinker that we haven't mentioned, but it, that I actually believe has some uh, something to contribute to this conversation, especially along the lines of the question of attentiveness, and that's mm. Iris Murdoch, a 20th century novelist and philosopher. And, and she actually acknowledges her, her debt to Simone Weil, who also has written very compellingly about the nature of attention. And I'll read this paragraph and, and then explain how I see a connection here to everything we've just been talking about. She writes, this is in, uh, by the way, the, the Sovereignty of Good, which is a short little collection of three talks that she gave her lectures. And she writes, I can only choose within the world I can see, in the moral sense of see, which implies that clear vision is a result of moral imagination and moral effort. One is often compelled almost automatically by what one can see. If we ignore the prior work of attention, and notice only the emptiness of the moment of choice, we are likely to identify freedom with the outward movement, since there is nothing else to identify it with. But if we consider that what the work of attention is like, how continuously it goes on and how imperceptibly it builds up structures of value around us, we shall not be surprised that at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. Uh, so I realize that's a little bit dense, but she's trying to argue for a understanding of freedom that depends on a, upon a prior and ongoing work of attentiveness. Uh, and so I'm thinking even of the way that you uh, describe Joshua adapting to how your children change or the, the changing environment. And I know as a parent as well of, of two young children, I find myself needing to be responsive to what is happening in that moment, certainly not settle into patterns of uh, automaticity. And, and so the idea that, you know, a lot of times we feel like in that moment of frustration, we might not do what we wanted to do if we were uh, thinking more clearly or, or had a little bit more patience. I think part of what we're describing is a lack of attentiveness, a lack of attention. In other words, the, the work of attention, that disposition to attend with care to the world will enable me to more freely act in the moment. And that, that freedom and attention is bound up together. And so it is about cultivating a disposition, a habit of seeing. You know, seeing is an interesting metaphor that we often link with attention. The idea that we can train our vision and that most of the time when we are looking, we in fact are not really seeing because we're not adding attentive care to the, the, the bare work 
of vision, right? And so we can expand our vision, see, you know, more intently only if we have learned to, to perceive with patience and with care and that that actually becomes uh, the way that we can sustain a higher degree of freedom in the moment of responsiveness to the moment. Does that sound right, Joshua? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was thinking about my, my father-in-law and he is, he's a carpenter and he's a, he's a gardener and a master gardener. Mm-hmm. And he is, uh, he has been talking with, with a man about gardening this particular plot of land that he's worked before. And this, this guy is, is asking him questions about what is the best way to do this. And he wants all of the, everything worked out. And my father-in-law doesn't know those answers and all the studies and all the latest, but he knows this plot of land. Mm-hmm. And he always is saying, do you know why thistles come up? Thistles come up because they're trying to build the soil because the soil is lacking nutrients. So thistles come up quick and they break down and then it builds the soil. It's preparing the next thing. That sort of awareness of, of that particular mm-hmm. plot of land is what we're talking about. So right. whether it's gardening or weaving or you know, whatever the thing is, um, that sort of spirit of awareness and attentiveness is the heart of what this mechanical arts program is in, in my mind. And that is, in fact, one of the chief goals of the program is to commend attentiveness. We do need, rather urgently perhaps, to recognize its importance and that the way of faithfulness has attentiveness as much of its content. As you were talking, Mike, about that quote and explaining it for us, um, my mind went to some of the moral and ethical dimensions of the question of attentiveness in the way that you guys are, are hopefully explaining it for us. It suggests to me the the timely importance of appreciating the real nature of the so-called vices against which the church has for so long preached and, and taught. I think particularly of the vice Achidia or acedia, often translated sloth, but I think also of envy. With respect to achidia or acedia, the sloth is far more than, never less than, but far more than an unwillingness to work, uh, to work a job. So we imagine, for good reason, the 20-something, 30-something year old young man who's in his parents' basement, plays video games all day long and uh, orders pizza for his meals and and that's his life. We can picture that and that's and that's fair. But there's actually a far deeper concern at work in the way the church has has thought about this particular vice. And it can be understood as writers have suggested as a resistance to even a rejection of the weight of reality, the ordered nature of reality, in as much as that ordered nature of weighty reality, which we cannot escape, carries with it ethical obligations. And it conveys responsibility. We have responsibility in relationship to reality. And combined with the Christian doctrine of providence, we have responsibilities connected to those people we know with whom God has surrounded us. Um, And our degrees of responsibility proceed from the most proximate to the most distant. Uh, appropriately. We are most responsible for those closest to us in the bonds of affinity, um, natural and voluntary. And then um, in increasing degrees or decreasing degrees, 
further out from that proximity. Our resistance to that way of thinking, which I think is encouraged by the language of, you know, everyone is my, everyone is family, every friend is family, that kind of slippery use of language where we want to just signal intimacy and value by obscuring any meaningful difference between certain bonds of affinity and context of providential relation. It's a resistance to the orderliness of reality and the responsibilities bound up with it. In a lot of ways, the refusal to be an attuned person is a resistance to their being ordered reality, which carries responsibilities for us as the inhabitor of God's world uh, of providence. But the, the envy element here seems relevant as well. If we think of envy as the embrace of the life not given and a, an effort to live a life not given. It's a rejection of providence in its actual form in our lives in favor of someone else's life. And so much of marketing and social media and publicity is, of course, driven by this almost to become an incubator of envy by design we are taught, we are catechized to desire the lives of the wealthy when we are not wealthy, uh, the desi- to desire the lives of the famous, even if we are not famous. In fact, there's a whole program back in the day, wasn't there? Lives of the Rich and Famous, that was designed to make you desire what was put on display in their everyday lives, and which you don't have. It's commended as something to aspire to, but more than that, to desire as the good life in a way that invites us to live a life not given. It's a rejection of the life that is given. And the life that is given is a good thing in all of its ordinary relations and context and so on. That requires attunement. It requires the attuned dexterity. It requires the attentiveness to life as it really is. And for that reason, I think so many of the church and theological Critics of our cultural moment, to use a tired expression, uh, are onto something when they suggest a lot of what is happening is a flat rejection of reality in favor of all kind of artificial substitutes. Do you think there's something in what you have been reading along these lines that matches up with either Akedia or Envy along lines like these? Certainly in, in both regards. I'm going to default to acedia because that's my habitual way of saying it. Um, the striking thing about acedia, I think, also is that it, the way I've understood it is that it's not just doing nothing. It is not doing what you ought to be doing, right? And so hmm. if we think of acedia merely as sloth in terms of, of not doing it, if it just has a synonym for laziness, we miss the many ways in which we might display this vice when we are, in fact, thinking ourselves to be working very hard or keeping ourselves perpetually busy, that busyness and hairiness itself can be a, a form of acedia because we, we're we expending energy, but we're, we're often expending energy in order to not do what we ought to be doing, to not confront the responsibilities, the obligations that are properly ours, to be contemplating or thinking about the things we ought to be thinking about. And, and I certainly think of our both technological and economic milieu, you know, sometimes it's just kind of called our, our techno and economic milieu because it's sometimes difficult to draw the lines that separate those things very neatly. But it can be framed as an environment designed, explicitly designed to cultivate 
both acedia and envy to generate desires that are disordered often for the sake of of the economy right it's it's driven by our dissatisfaction with the life that we are given dissatisfaction with with a life that is not only given in the sense that we've received it and it is it is fixed but a, a life that we can recognize as a gift and be grateful for and so it, it operates in such a way as to undermine gratitude as a virtue generating again envy switching back and forth between these two although i think you know they're they're related i think of so much of the way that we we conduct our lives flipping from both forms of acedia in a sense right so uh, a very busy i think that's the term all of us can relate to right a very busy life that doesn't necessarily for that reason feel productive or satisfying that then flips into the other word we might use at this point is vegging or all we know to do is just sit ourselves in front of the screen and still you know and remain perfectly passive consumers of entertainment and in neither case are we truly engaging in and leisure properly understood or work properly understood and so i i certainly think both of those vices are are very much in display in our society and and are encouraged the the tacit moral formation of our society is to cultivate those vices in other words among other things we could say it's only on christian terms that we can understand how a workaholic is guilty of sloth right well i mean i i suspect the classical tradition has resources as well to understand this you know it, it's in Aristotelian philosophy for example but but yes yeah, certainly you know i think that you know the christian tradition as it's picked up those i mean i think of dante Don, reading dante is what made this clear to me i'll, I'll put mm. it that way right yeah. mm. well that's so helpful thank you you mentioned gratitude it reminds me of something joshua has suggested as well that the the issue of gratitude connected as it is with attentiveness as a dynamic of godliness in this context mm -hmm. uh, is also related to our relationship to the question of mastering or, or control of the world. Uh, Joshua, could you say something mm -hmm. more about that? How not seeking to master or control everything is kind of set over against appreciating life as a gift. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was thinking as Mike was talking about the part of it that I latched onto was was envy, and I remember I listened to a a, a lecture uh, that was I guess he was a theologian talking about a sort of a philosophy or a theology of technology, and he made a joke and he he said something about you know people ask me is there anything about my iPhone in the in the Bible. And he said, it's Ecclesiastes 7.29 that God made men upright, but they sought out many devices, right? <laughs> and everybody chuckled and, you know, we have our devices, iPhone and the Bible. But, but he's not think far off. <laughs> I, I think that's actually not a joke. Uh, <laughs> right, and what I, right. mean is, what I mean is this, that word for devices, if you remember, if you, you know, the King James, it's inventions. Mm -hmm. uh, in the ESV, it's schemes. And mm -hmm. it's the same word in Second Chronicles that's used to describe the war engines, the war machines, right? So it's the same word. And obviously it's used in different ways here. So it's not saying technologies or machinery is bad, that God created men upright, but they sought out machinery. iPhones. But the <laughs> iPhones, right? But the idea is that God created men upright, you know, as an agent, and he has displaced his faith in God and has taken on trust in 
devices, trust in the work of man's hands. I think what's behind this, what's behind this kind of idea is sort of an envy or a grasping or this idea, you know, in Ecclesiastes, this concept of sh- trying to shepherd the wind, you know, mm-hmm. trying to take control, but the wind blows where it wishes. Mm-hmm. God sends the wind. And if you want to grab and steer and, and take a hold of it, you're doomed to fail because you're a creature. You're not God. And the grasping and the controlling and the desire for mastery, I am a God. That kind of drive, I think, is what's the heart of, you know, Ecclesiastes 7.29, that we're made upright but we sought out many devices. And so devices can actually not only be the conceptual devices, the schemes in our mind of how we're going to thwart God's sovereignty and his rule over us, but it also could be iPhones. It also could be other sorts of things that we make that we put our faith in, our trust in that, you know, science says, or I have this new app, or I have something that I don't need to trust in the providence and sovereignty of God, because this app is really going to get me where I need to go. Um, that might sound silly and trite, but I actually think we all do that quite often. I think the envy part I've noticed to be the more that digital technology gets sophisticated and pervasive, that our phones do more and more things for us. I do think we begin to slip into the Ecclesiastes 729 thing that we can we can begin to put our hope in that and trust in that. So, you know, I think that that's a real temptation. I think that's a real thing. And I think that when we get to talking about Albert Borgman and he sees what he describes as the device paradigm, which we'll get into later, but this whole idea of trying to outsource, I would rather have someone else take care of my life for me. I just want to consume. He Hmm. says, no, engaged dive in. God made this world. Be here, be present, and receive as a gift everything that's around you. And it's in that engagement with creation that we're going to begin to connect some dots, I think. And so theologically, in agreement with the Christian tradition as a whole, at least Augustine forward, including in the Reformed tradition, Calvin, Herman Bovink, more recently Van Til, stressing this, our creaturely limits are not a problem to be overcome. They are a good. And not being creator, recognizing we are creature, is indeed the beginning of wisdom, acknowledging that the Lord is the Lord and we are not him. This, you would suggest then, is why gratitude is so big a part of the picture. We don't have to be. God is who he is in divine simplicity and infinite happiness. He does not need us to be who he is or to realize his potential or to become happy or happier than he is in the perfection of his bliss eternally. We do not have to be. Nothing has to be other than God himself, meaning that all that is carries with it a weight of significance captured in our language of gift, the sheer gratuity of things, so that our gratitude is not just a moment in an overall picture of our good work, but gratitude suffuses, as it were, the whole of the dynamic of relating well to God and to all that is not God, to providence, to our context, to our spaces, our reality, the people he has surrounded us with. This would therefore be, Joshua, is that right? Much of the attentive receptivity of mm. life as it really is, 
with our creatureliness and its limitations seen as a good? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the antithesis of the the technological way of being in the world, as it were, the the desire to master. I am the master. I can control. No, I'm a creature and this is a gift. And I think that it's an interesting thing. I think a lot of people would think of craftsmanship as control. I'm going to shape this piece of what I'm going to make something and I'm going to exercise dominion. And there's, of course, a, a truth to that. But I think that you know, when you think about the godly king, when God says, this is the, the king that pleases me, it's not someone who tries to overthrow the divine king, to overthrow God, but to be a, a, a vice regent, to be a ruler underneath God, a ruler and a, a maker who acknowledges that there is a true maker. And I think that kind of uh, sense of craftsmanship, that if we think of our work as I'm going to take control, we're going to be off on the wrong foot, but it is all about receptivity. And I think that practically speaking, when you make a mistake, <laughs> it's a humbling thing. And there's a lot of, there's a lot you can learn when you, you know, miscut the joint or you mess up some craft that you're working on. Uh, it does remind you that you are fallible. Uh, not only are you working in a, a smaller scale, but that you're also fallible. And it, it is a, a humbling thing to be able to engage uh, your hands in work. And that mistake and your relationship to that mistake becomes a source of wisdom for you, but also mm -hmm. for others to the extent you're humble enough to share with others the fact of your mistake so that they learn from it as well. This is very Proverbs-like, as we yep. will say something more about this later on. What you're saying now, Joshua, reminds me of one other thing that I wanted to mention before we wrap things up for episode one in our series and that is, it helps us understand why in Greystone, we do try to push back against some of the misuse of the, of course, biblical language and well-warranted idea of a cultural mandate or even a dominion mandate. Of course, there's a lot of truth in the idea and the language. It's also something that has often been distorted and misused, certainly as a paradigm for how we relate to people as well as to creation and providence and to things in God's creation. And also as a mode of life, which some have seemed to adopt precisely that way. But one way that we try to situate the cultural mandate, if you will, biblically and theologically, is by recognizing that within Genesis, it is the second, not the first mandate. The cultural mandate comes after, theologically and sequentially, the liturgical mandate. When God gave Eve to Adam, he presented to Adam his liturgical partner, who, to use Paul's language from 1 Corinthians, is the glory of the man, the woman as the glory of the man, the liturgical responder, who in responding to what he inaugurates with the word or deed is glorifying that inaugural word or deed, that instantiation, um, that glorifying responsiveness, which is fundamentally liturgical, is true not just for Adam and Eve in the abstract. It's a way of understanding what we are for and how in our differences, particularly as man and woman, but also our differences from one another are designed ultimately to be ordered to the glory of God in the Son by the Spirit. That liturgical orientation to who and why we are comes prior to the cultivation mandate, 
by establishing its context. And so the cultural mandate is ordered to the liturgical one. What we do with one another, what we do with things is controlled by this overarching goal captured in the opening question of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All things are ordered to that, which sets the context and the terrain, as it were, the space, establishes the space of our relations to one another and to all things. I think this helps us avoid some of the misuses of the cultural mandate and dominion mandate idea without losing it, because it does have its place, but within this kind of subordinate set of considerations, I suggest. At least it's something that we do make much of in the Greystone context. Well, friends, you've helped so much in this opening discussion of our series to explain why within the MAP initiative at Greystone, so much of what we're after here can be reduced to the cultivation of attentiveness and attunement, the attuned dexterity that belongs to craftsmanship properly understood, our right relationship to devices, not just technological ones we may hold in our hands, but devices in the general human sense of means that we use to accomplish what we identify as our goals. You've helped us understand as well the sheer gratuity of reality, how it carries responsibilities for us. It also protects us from certain kinds of frustration, which are inherent to being creatures rather than the creator. And you've helped us understand the urgency of recognizing sources of wisdom in the order of God's creation and providence, rather than where so much of the world would have us look for the same. So thank you so much for that. I do want to give you guys a chance for a final word on these topics for today, but I did want to first alert our readers to what is coming in the rest of our series. Today we have introduced the map and we've mentioned Proverbs. We haven't developed much of how Proverbs works this way, but we've mentioned Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and how they illuminate the sources of communal wisdom. We've tried to connect this matter or concern of wisdom with a theology of our humanity and of our creatureliness, which is at work in all properly executed mechanical arts, as Hugh termed them, uh, and which ought to be driven by Christian commitments that find expression with theological insights and trajectories of the Reformed tradition particularly. We've introduced some of the key concepts here, but there's a great deal more to say. And we have four more episodes in the series in which we will detail this or that element of the overall picture. So in our next episode, episode two, we will discuss the nature of workmanship and craftsmanship, hearing more from David Pye and Joshua leading the way in the explanation of what Pi was after and how well, we have so much to learn from him on the nature of social and other kinds of technology, uh, the theology of vocation in relationship to the concept of design. We'll hear more about the workmanship of risk over against the workmanship of certainty. And then in our third episode, we'll pick up natural order in relationship to work and technology the notion of durability, the significance of diversity, the notion of value. We'll touch on power and intention, technological media, and related considerations. In our fourth 
episode will detail in a more particular way some examples of biblical and theological scholarship with which we could bring the contributions of Ivan Illich and David Pye and the other authors that we are mentioning as conversation partners, bringing them in connection with uh, one another so that uh, what these other scholars have noted, we can appreciate also as biblical and theological insights matching up well with recent work that has been done. In our last episode, the fifth one, we will locate the MAP initiative in the overall Greystone vision of time, space, and vocation, which you will know from our Order of Reality course and other work that we have done. We will explain how what we are doing here fits the overall Greystone mission in these ways, and we'll also take this opportunity to tie up some proverbial loose ends as we have left them hanging at each episode's end, and we will also provide an overall perspective on why this kind of effort or others like it should be elevated in significance and importance in how we think of Christian and especially ministerial formation. For such a time as this, as the language drawn from Esther to cover all kinds of scenarios in evangelical parlance, but there really is a special timeliness to our consideration of these things at this juncture in in our story as the church. And we'll look for ways to connect the current uh, state of the church and her ministry with the concerns of the mechanical arts program. So thank you both Joshua and Michael for what you've contributed today. Can I now hear perhaps a, a parting word for episode one from you both that uh, offers some perspective on what we have said today. Joshua, do you have any thoughts for us as we round out our first episode? Sure, thank you. One of the things I was thinking about uh, throughout this is the common idea of how long does it take to, to master a craft? How mm-hmm. long does it take to become a master? And the, the rule of thumb, you know, everybody throws out is 10,000 hours. And I think the book of Proverbs agrees with that, uh, that you can't download wisdom. You can't just uh, go on Wikipedia or go to some YouTube series and then get wisdom and you have it there and then you just apply it. You have to practice. You have to cultivate habits. You have to be engaged with the world. You have to learn by making mistakes. And I think that's what the book of Proverbs teaches us. There are times when you answer a fool according to his folly. And there are times when you do not answer a fool according to his folly and discerning and knowing when is this, what is this moment? You cannot just download it. And so I think the 10,000 hours model is helpful to think about these things for those of us who are Christians, those of us who want to get wisdom, you know, all else we want wisdom. Well, that's signing up for a long-term project. That is signing up for a life of engaging. And I think that should be an encouragement to us. Maybe it sounds discouraging that you're not going to get it tomorrow, but it should be encouraging that it is when you don't get it tomorrow, it's not because I'm just not a wise person. No, this is the path. This is a choice to continue to learn and to continue to uh, interact with with God's world. So I think it's an encouragement. It's a long-term journey. And so the, the call of wisdom is to dive deep, come in and pray for wisdom and bring your hands to this task, bring your life, your bodies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Be ready for the long term because mm. this, that's what this life is. It doesn't fit very easily, does it, with a harried and hurried mode of life 
such has become not only common but prized and valued and praised in our in our context today. That, that's so helpful, Joshua. Thank you. It reminds me of something I've often said to the Greystone audience about why we have Greystone mugs and Greystone wine glasses. And it's because those are two drinks, coffee and wine, that you can't or should not at least hurry through. Um, they, they force you to slow down, which makes conversation possible. It's conducive to building a relationship and more than a, a glass of water, which has its place, can do. We also have Longview Hall as our main dining and fellowship hall at Greystone precisely to try to commend taking the long view. In, in so many ways, Joshua, we've been reminded today, I think, to slow down hmm. and that it really is okay, in fact, more than okay, to resist the push constantly to hurry through this thing for the next thing, but to slow down in order to hear, to see, to feel what we would so easily miss otherwise. Thank you for the reminder. And this will come up again, of course, over and over again in the remainder of our conversations together in this series. Mike, any last words for us today? Yeah, rather briefly, simply that Christmas is so much of what we're talking about, some of these um, key terms, key concepts, uh, whether it's gratitude, the giftedness of reality, attentiveness and attunement, skill and engagement, wisdom, creatureliness, right? All of these circle around a very fundamental question, which is, what does it mean to be a human being, right? What does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's maybe one of the most, if not the most important question that we face and the answer to which we can no longer take for granted. Um, and so what we're after here is a way of inhabiting the world that is proper to the kinds of creatures that we are. And, and I think that's really the heart of what we're discussing. So I, I don't think there could be a more critical task that we could be taking up. The critical question of mm -hmm. our of our generation is the anthropological one. Mm -hmm. um, I think without without debate, and for that very reason, it is even more fundamentally the theological one. It's our mm -hmm. doctrine of God that is clearly impoverished mm -hmm. by our terribly weak and impoverished doctrine of the human mm -hmm. person. This is this whole initiative, and much of what Greystone does is in its own way. Uh, a deployment of a theological anthropology and the map initiative, I think puts our concerns and commitments uh, on display in a special way. This is what it means before the living God, the true God of the Christian confession, truly to live. This is what life, real life includes and belongs to. Well, thank you, Michael, for that reminder. Yeah. And thank you, uh, listeners, uh, for joining us for this first of five episodes on the Mechanical Arts Program at Greystone Theological Institute. We look forward to welcoming you back for the second episode and for the remainder in this series. Until then, the Lord be with you, and we look forward to connecting with you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone. Greystone.